The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord shall stand forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, Amen. I recall being in the first grade at Doyle Ryder Elementary School in the classroom of the ever-benevolent Mrs. Phyllis McCree, a teacher of the highest order, and a woman whom you should know is now in her retirement a lay minister at the Mount Olive Missionary Baptist Church, which is the first and oldest African-American Baptist church in Flint, just down the road from us. I had the exquisite blessing of being a student in Mrs. McCree's classroom, my first year at Doyle Ryder in a multicultural magnet program being tried out at the school. My elementary years were spent learning alongside fellow students from across the city who brought with them a delightful variety of culture, religion, skin color, language. I remember learning that my friend Angela's family was Filipino and that she spoke Tagalog at home and English at school. I remember learning that my friend Ashley's dad was the much-beloved pastor at a very large African-American congregation here in the city. I remember that my friend Joel's family immigrated from Mexico and that my friend Jason's dad had left him as a baby and he never knew him. I remember that Elizabeth's parents were Democrats and that Richard's parents were Republicans and they would get into long debates on the playground about Ronald Reagan. I remember once getting a particularly hard soccer ball kicked straight into my face at point-blank range during a soccer game on the fields behind Durant-Turimat when I was laid out and sobbing in pain. And I remember my coach, Coach Harris, a large Muslim man whose sons were my friends and classmates, he ran out to me in his traditional garb of a white kurta and a white kufi, and he, and he tenderly lifted me up in his arms and carried me over to my parents'. At Dole Ryder, I, I had the opportunity to learn alongside students of color, to learn from teachers of color, to read books by people of color, to read poetry and literature from across cultures around the world. And one of the things that I remember learning in first grade was that there was this thing out there in the world, a thing called prejudice, a reactive thing that we humans do to one another all the time. No culture is immune. But that it was a hurtful thing that we did. Judging a book by the cover, I recall, was the definition imparted to my fellow six-year-olds in first grade. I remember Mrs. McCree telling us that we need to be careful not to give in to the temptation to prejudge a person simply by what they look like. I remember her telling her just how easy it is to do this to people. And I remember her saying to us, this, this loving, caring, joyful woman of color whose reputation in the city and skill as a teacher was known and appreciated, who had plaques on her wall celebrating her accomplishments. I remember her telling us that some people, she said, some people in this world might assume bad things about her just because her skin was a different color than other people's. And I remember her asking us, but what if we are wrong about those assumptions? What if we miss out on something great, a great friendship, a great relationship, simply because we've made up our minds about somebody else by the way 
they look. Church, I count it a triple blessing to have been part of this learning community at Doyle Rider. It profoundly shaped how I would come to view this world, though I must admit that far too often I myself have been led astray often by that ancient enemy of prejudice. And that Mrs. McCree was right. It is really, really, really easy to make assumptions about people based only on what you see on the outside. We're in the third week of our Lenten series called Tested. We've seen that Jesus was tested in the wilderness by the devil, and I'm making the case that Jesus' temptations did not end in the wilderness. That his temptation to deviate from God's will did not terminate with his successful duel with the devil, but that Jesus was entering into a lifetime of temptation, a lifetime of being tested to take an easier path, a path that would lead him away from the purposes of God. Last week, Jesus was tested by the disbelief of a learned teacher of Israel. I mean, if this teacher couldn't grasp a basic truth about the kingdom of God, what hope would there be for anybody else? I mean, shouldn't Jesus just sort of mock him and pick up a metaphorical prophetic whip and humiliate Nicodemus for his ignorance and childish naivete? But no, Jesus patiently and tenderly exposes Nicodemus to the heart of the entire gospel, that God loved the world and sent his own son to redeem, reconcile, and restore it. And Nicodemus is so captivated by this good news, he goes all in on the Jesus way until his dying day. And today, at a Samaritan village, at a well at about noon, Jesus is going to be tested again, and this time by an ancient adversary to human relationships, prejudice. Let's get into it. In today's gospel reading, John tells us that Jesus was heading back to his home county of Galilee in the north. He'd been in the region of Judea in the south. He'd been in the city of Jerusalem for Passover. You remember a couple weeks ago, uh, if you read, if you, or sorry, if you skim back in your, in your uh, uh, gospel of John, in John chapter 2, he overturns tables in the temple courts. And last week, he was in Jerusalem where he had a nighttime pop-in visit by a respected religious leader. But, but this week, the festival's over. Party's over. It's time to go home. And so Jesus is going back up north. And in John uh, 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 chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus, uh, John tells us that on his way home, Jesus, here's the quote, Jesus had to go through Samaria. Samaria was a county sandwiched between Galilee and Judea, and while cutting through Samaria would have reduced his travel significantly, pious Jews avoided the Samaritan region with scrupulous rigor. There's much to say about the Samaritans. Some you have already heard us say from this pulpit before, but for those who need a quick refresh Here is the short story. When the northern kingdom of Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians, the Assyrians forced the people remaining in the land to intermarry with people from other tribes, religions, and cultures. Over time, some of those descendants stayed put and moved back into a parcel of land near their old capital city. While they were there, they edited the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, And in their edited version, that every reference to Mount Zion, where Jerusalem would be later built, was changed to say Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans 
worship. They established that in their Bibles as where God truly dwelled. The Samaritans built a temple to Yahweh on Mount Gerizim, just as the Jews had a temple built in Jerusalem. And if you were a first century Jewish person, like Jesus and his disciples, you would have learned from a young age that the Samaritans were an idolatrous and cursed people with an impure bloodline who had purposefully tampered with the scriptures. Samaritans would have been the butt of your jokes. It would have been the worst example that could have been used in a story, a constant image of impurity and sin. You would have been taught in Sunday school that the Samaritans had tried to sabotage the building of Jerusalem's wall after the exile and that they refused to come to Jerusalem for festivals and atonement. You would have thought it preposterous that God could be worshipped in more than one place because temples were places where gods dwelled. And the only way for God to live in both Jerusalem and Mount Gerizim is if there were two gods, and that would have been a deep heresy, a violation of the statement of faith, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Therefore, you would have concluded the Samaritans are dangerous people and should be avoided at all costs, which, in fact, Jews did. But our reading today says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. In Greek, the word is the word for necessity. It was necessary that Jesus goes through Samaria. Except that it wasn't. And like a, a Jew from Galilee would only travel through Samaria when they needed to save some time, which was rare. Instead, they would tack on a day or two extra and take the long route around the region, avoiding it completely. There was no need for Jesus wasn't in a hurry. There was no real need, but the text says he had to do it. So whether it's due to a deep desire just to get home quickly, or perhaps, as I think, in a desire to teach his disciples just how far the verse goes, God so loved the world, Jesus chooses to go through Samaria. And as we heard by noon, by the hottest part of the day, he ends up near one of the Samaritan villages, his body quite thirsty, and he begs for some water from an unnamed woman, herself a Samaritan, who just happened to be there at the hottest part of the day. A lengthy conversation ensues. There's some sarcasm there. There's some snark in their back and forth, a bit of verbal sparring between these two, right up to the point when Jesus interrupts her and asks her to go and bring her husband to the well. And this, I imagine she gritted her teeth, narrowed her eyes, countenance dark and furious, and after a long angry pause, whispered through her clenched teeth, I don't have one. And Jesus looks at her again in my imagination with compassion, his heart breaking for this Samaritan woman he's never met before, but who has endured much pain in her life by that statement. And he says, I know. I know that you've actually had five, and the person you're with now isn't technically your husband. Now, before you rush to judgment right there, church, on this poor woman, as so many have done, and so many still do, assuming her somehow to be in this position by virtue of some sort of problem on her end, uh, some commentators even calling her a sinful woman, let me say this. In this region, at this time, there were really only two ways for a marriage to end prematurely, divorce or death. 
And divorces, actually, by the records we have, divorces were quite rare, though at times they were permitted for a couple reasons. And while this might be hard to hear, frequently in this time, divorces were permitted in cases of infertility. So perhaps it was discovered that for reasons far beyond her control, her physiology being unable to conceive, she had been discarded by husband after husband after husband who were searching for more fertile women, women who could give them heirs, sons and daughters. She was set aside, abandoned, left without the ability to fend for herself in a world that demanded of a woman that she had a man. Or perhaps it's the case that one or several of her husbands had died. Imagine losing your spouse at such a young age. It is a life-wrecking agony. And now imagine doing it several times over. This woman's grief is raw and bitter. But such a situation would explain why she's living with somebody who's not technically her husband. She might be following the chapter and verse of her Bible that said she should go and live with her dead husband's brother who could provide for her. But more likely to me, it's a combination of these realities. The the combination which resulted in a woman, not who was overcome by her own sin, but by her grief and guilt and shame, having potentially been told that she was worthless by some of those ex-husbands and having to watch others become sick and die, all the while she's feeling desperate for any reality other than her own. Maybe that explains why she is at this well at noon, at the hottest part of the day, when the other women would have long been gone. I mean, maybe she's just tired of their sympathetic glances and their pained empathy. I mean, maybe like us, when we're going through sorrow or suffering, she's just tired of having people come up and ask, how are you doing? With that look that expects us just to dump out our souls in the great hall. I mean, maybe she just needed a little alone time that day because it was all she could have done just to drag herself to the well. And now she's there, and she's not alone. There's this annoying, thirsty, and quite mannersless Jewish man she's never met before demanding water from her and then telling her her own story like he already knew it before. I mean, this is a strange and upsetting moment for her, I have to imagine. And after this brief theological debate with the man she thinks is kind of a prophet, she ends up going back to her village and she starts knocking on doors. She starts flagging down passersby. I mean, she's like bursting into schools and synagogues and peering into the windows of homes and interrupting lunches of her neighbors. And she's telling anybody who will listen about this encounter she had with Jesus at the well. And she's saying, come and see a man who has told me everything I have ever done. He can't be Messiah can he? There's a hopeful tinge to this acclamation, even a joyful one, perhaps the first bit of joy she has experienced in a long time. And eventually, a large crowd of people follow her back to the well where they too encounter Jesus and they convince him to stay in their town for two days, after which point they are so convinced that by the end of today's reading, the people of the village say, truly this one is not just prophet, but the savior of the universe. It's remarkable. Church, I don't know what you need to hear in this gospel passage today, but maybe, maybe you're here and maybe you just need to hear that invitation to come out to the well and meet Jesus.
I, I know, I know that you're here today, and with you, you've brought whatever it is that's hurting you. You've been told by others just to get over it. Time will heal all wounds. But that grief is still there. The pain is still real. You still feel unworthy. You feel less than you truly are. You, you feel insecure and doubtful that maybe you'll ever experience joy again. Now is as good of a time as any to go out to the well to meet Jesus. I mean, like this woman, we're here and, and we want, all we want is space away from prying questions and the wondering and the worrying. We put on good church faces while we're here, keeping people at arm's length. We just want to come here and be alone. Like the woman, whatever has happened to us might not even be our fault. Just the confluence of events in a universe that have brought us into a place of despair and pain. Like the woman, we, we hear the promise of Jesus. We hear his offer of grace and peace. We hear him promising to us living water, water that will not fail like other sources of water we've tried to find refreshments at. Water that has only brought our lives into further bitterness and sorrow. And like the woman, we might think that Jesus' offer of something better is just too good to be true. Such a thing, we rationalize, is impossible. Nothing will satisfy what I am going through. Nothing will cure me or make me whole. After all, we've told ourselves for years, life is just bitter and hard and filled with stagnant cisterns of mildewy water. Church, today is as good a time as any for you to come out to the well with Jesus. It's time for us each to pack up our anxieties and our sorrows and all of those voices that are telling us we're not good enough and that our bitter past and, uh, that, were, that were marked by betrayal and hurt and anger and pain. It's time for us to drag the whole lot of them with us and lay them out in front of a Savior sitting at the side of a well in the heat of the day who is unsurprised at what we have experienced, yet filled with compassion. Church, it is time for us to realize that none of what we have experienced is news to Jesus. None of our deep sorrow is lost on him. Jesus knows us. He knows every part of us from our fake smile at coffee hour to our unrepentant hearts when we speak to our ex. He knows the fragile faith we attempt to embrace during MRIs. He knows the loneliness of feeling abandoned by the ones we love the most. It's time to go to the well because at the well we meet somebody who knows everything we've ever done. Someone who knows everything that ever has been done to us. Someone who despite all of this turns to us and looks at us through our wall of shame and anger and justifications and says to us, here is water that will not fail. Drink from this and be satisfied. Because Jesus says, unlike your father or your mother or your ex-spouse or your pastor or your teacher or your friend or your children or the love of your life, all of whom may have failed you, Jesus says, I will not fail you. What I have to give in this story we read today, what I have to give, Jesus says, I give freely even to the people on the margins, even to the people whom others have written off and have suspected our bad news from the beginning. And that really is the ball game for us today. When faced with a person 
whom other pious Jews would have written off as problematic, shameful, hopeless, idolatrous, and a blood enemy, when faced with somebody whom his own Bible says is bad news and should be set aside, Jesus, when faced with his own prejudice towards this woman, Jesus looked closer. Jesus stayed put. Jesus engaged her. Jesus talked with her. He did not condemn or judge or silence or mock her. Tested there at a well in the hot noon sun, tested by a deep-seated prejudice to dismiss this woman outright, to take one look at her and write her off as undeserving of even empathy, Jesus does not give in at all, but instead offers her the dignity of conversation, the promise of hope. He offers her a living water that will never end, and Jesus reveals to her for the first time in this entire gospel his true identity as the living Lord of Israel. Tested like us, the scripture says, yet without sin. Church, Jesus does what we cannot do. He sees beyond what lies on the outside. Like God looking at young David, God sees the heart, not what is on the outside. He peers into our hearts and our souls. He sees into our very selves, and he calls to you and to me, no matter how much shame or guilt or anger or addiction has accumulated on the surface of your hearts, Jesus calls to each of us today and says, ask me for water. Go ahead, right now, ask me for living water, and I will satisfy your deepest thirst. Jesus says, I don't care about the walls that you have built up to keep people away. I don't care about the shame you're carrying. I don't care about the ache in your heart. I care about you. And I want you to be satisfied and healed and made whole. So church, what are we waiting for? Today is as good a day as any to go to the well. Today is as good a day as any to ask this Savior for the gift of living water in our life. Today is as good a day as any to believe for the first time that Jesus can and does offer us water that will not fail in this life and in the life to come. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the Church of Jesus Christ say, Amen. Thanks for listening this week. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. You can learn more about us at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube, but better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 10.30 a.m. to worship with us. We would love to welcome you and your family to worship. Have a great week.